Hello, good evening, good day, everybody. Welcome to episode 66 of the Ask Abhijit show. Great to be back with you all. Before we begin, let me say hello to everyone. I can see Akash Athor, Sachit, Ritesh, Ajay, Nilesh, Suman, Himanshu, Parvinder, Harshit 2.0, Deepak, Ayush, Dhruva, Emma, Megastar, Animish, Aditya, Dungar Singh Chauhan, Aichu, Muse, Chiching, Satoru, Gojo, Shabaz, Gamer X, Harsh Jain, Utkarsina, Vanshi, Bali, Dragon Master, Harshada, Pidnikar, Go Ahead, Tanmay, Kamlesh, Dhruva, and everybody else. Good evening, good day to all of you. Great to have you all with me tonight. And as you know, Today is a Q&A session that's all about the live chat comments. So you can ask me questions in the live chat and I will strive to answer your questions. I've also picked some uh, more questions from which were left over from yesterday because I've got hundreds of questions in the comments. So I'll try to answer some, a few of the questions from the comments as well. So let us get going with a question, with the questions. This is from Go Ahead, and the question is: Tell me about Bigfoot creatures in the Himalayas. That's an interesting question. So, uh, it's not called the Bigfoot; it's called the Yeti or the Migoi. The, that's the Tibetan uh, name, I think, for this. Uh, for this, it's called a cryptid. I think crypt, crypt, cryptid. Yes, it's an unknown animal that is said to exist high in the Himalayas, in the frozen regions. Uh, of the Himalayas and uh, the local people in 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 Tibet, in Bhutan, even in Sikkim, they speak about this this creature. It's a large man-sized uh, creature, you would say. It seems to be very intelligent. It's called the Yeti or the Migoi, and there have been lots of sightings, reported sightings of this animal. Even the Indian Army had taken had uh, recently in in recent memory, I believe had released some pictures on on social media on twitter i think of some uh, footprints of of an unknown creature that looks like human like footprints in the snow you know tracks in the snow that sort of thing and uh, people have been searching for this creature for well over a century and thus far we have no actual hard evidence that this creature exists but that's uh, there's a lot of apocryphal evidence lots of tales there are some uh, reported uh, there is some evidence of some uh, skin of the animal in some monastery somewhere and so on and so forth. And there is this highway that goes through uh, that goes through Sikkim, I think, India, where which which uh, apparently goes through the heartland of the Yeti. So uh, if you want to travel through that place and try your luck at, at sighting this legendary beast or, or animal or creature, and you can try that. So that's what I can tell you about it. It's uh, never been actually discovered. Maybe it does exist. Maybe it doesn't exist. We don't know for sure. Some people say it's just the Himalayan brown bear, which is an enormous, big, huge bear, uh, 300, 400 kilos, huge bear. So maybe, so maybe it's that. Maybe some, maybe some people are claiming that, uh, claiming that it is just sightings of the Himalayan brown bear that looks like something else. And maybe there's an actual creature out there which has never, which may be so intelligent that it has never been uh, discovered. It wants to stay away from humans. Maybe it knows how bad humans are or whatever. So 
so we don't know for sure it's all speculation as of today it's never been actually discovered nobody has actually taken a, a genuine verifiable photograph of this beast no video and uh, no dead bodies have been found no skeletons so can't say for sure but it's interesting that we have this beast right here in our own country and in tibet etc so interesting okay let us take some more questions is it possible for a human to be immortal is what rushikesh says well as far as science goes it's not possible for a human to be mortal uh, humans seem to have an upper limit of lifespan that goes a, a little beyond 100 years maybe 110 120 years i think the oldest recorded verifiable uh, human being who lived to the oldest age is about 140 144 maybe japan maybe somewhere in southeast asia i'm not sure where it was so i think that's the uh, established record now people especially in india claim that in the old days people used to live for hundreds of years and all that well okay fine but uh, we don't have any actual verifiable evidence of that i'm not saying it's not possible but from the perspective of medical science there is no evidence that any such thing is possible there is the process called aging which we are all aware of right it seems to be associated with the shortening of the telomeres the ends of the chromosomes in in human beings and maybe in other animals as well and that seems to be associated with uh, with aging so people are trying to reverse that or or try to try to slow that down and maybe that is the key to extending human lifespans but but uh, apart from that there is no real i mean that's that's what they're trying but it's not succeeded thus far so from the perspective of science medical science biology it doesn't seem that it's possible for humans to be immortal or even to extend their lifespans beyond 100 well beyond 100 years right uh and there's also the question of consciousness because even if you are able to extend the lifespan of the body somehow what happens to the brain i mean uh, the, one of the ways that we remember things the way we create memories is to forget what's been uh, stored in the memory in the past so the brain the mind seems to actively forget certain things in order to create new memories now if you let's say hypothetically you're able to extend your lifespan beyond 200 years will you remember everything that happened 100 years ago i am not sure if the human brain is designed to have to retain memories that go back that long you know that 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 volume of memories and all that so i don't know if, if even if, even if you're able to extend the lifespan of the physical body if the mind will survive that long will it be will it survive or will the mind itself deteriorate and uh, become you know uh, it may become it become pointless to to for the body to survive that long if the mind ceases to function in a coherent and a human like way so you know these are the questions and uh, so from the perspective of medical science it's quite clear that it's not possible for a human to be immortal so that's what i can answer from the perspective of science and the data that we have at hand now this is a good question uh, could you discuss the scientific paper published on nature that neeraj rai spoke about regarding the ayurvedic prakriti and its relation with genetics good question so let me uh let's go to google and uh, hang in there let me let me try to find the paper mm, one second one second 
try to see if I have it stored somewhere or or just give me a minute, please. Okay, I have it booked bookmarked, so I'll be able to share it with you. So this is the paper, cookies, etc. All right. Okay, I think I was not able to share it. I think I'll be able to share it now. Here we are. Here we are. So this is the paper that uh, Dr. Neeraj Rai spoke about the other day. Uh, it's called Genome-Wide Analysis Correlates Ayurveda Prakriti. So this is an actual scientific paper. It's not uh, whatever people would claim it is. It, it was published in 2015. And the abstract says that the practice of Ayurveda, the traditional medicine of India, is based on the concept of three major constitutional types, Vata, Pitta and Kapha, defined as Prakriti. To the best of our knowledge, no study has convincingly correlated genomic variations with the classification of Prakriti. Uh, in the present study, in this study, which uh, I'm showing right now, uh, we performed genome-wide SNP, single nucleotide polymorphism analysis, of 262 well-classified male individuals after screening more than 3,000 subjects belonging to the three Prakritis, we found 52 SNPs that were significantly different between Prakritis without any, without any confounding effect of stratification after 10 raised to 6 permutations and so on and so forth. We further validated our finding with 296 Indian population, 297 Indian population samples with known ancestry. Uh, and so on. So we found that the PGM-1 correlates with the phenotype of Pitta as prescribed in the ancient text of Charaka Samhita, suggesting that the phenotypic classification of India's traditional medicine has a genetic basis and its Prakriti-based practice in vogue for many centuries resonates with personalized medicine. So this essentially corroborates the Ayurvedic Prakrit classification of people into three major constitutional types, which is Vata, Pitta and Kapha. So there are three kinds of people with three kinds of constitutions, Vata type constitution, Pitta type constitution and the Kapha type, type constitution according to ancient Ayurvedic classification. And it seems now on the basis of this paper, which I have just shown that this classification actually has basis in genetics. So it actually means that people have genetic differences that fit into these three classifications. Isn't that fascinating? So the science of genetics has actually corroborated what Ayurveda has been saying for thousands of years, that people uh, can be classified into three separate constitutional types, Vata, Pitta, Kapha. So that's what Dr. Neeraj Rai, Rai was speaking about. Uh, I have uh, shown you the article. Let me show, you, show it to you again. In case you want to study this, you can Google the title of the article, Genome-Wide Analysis Correlates Ayurveda Prakriti. It is by Govindraj Thangraj E. Al. And uh, you can read it up. So it's a very interesting study. And uh, you see, our ancient uh, sciences actually are being corroborated with 21st century scientific advancements. Isn't that fascinating? So great question. Great question. Right. Let us take... Okay. Karthik says, does the past, present and future coexist? So you're talking about time, so we don't really know for sure. Uh, time is one of the great mysteries in physics, in science, as is gravitation. And uh, yeah, so we don't quite know what time is. At the quantum level, time, does it even exist? We're not sure. <laughs> so that's how it is. Does the past, present, future coexist? 
there's no way to actually tell. We have a we have a very fuzzy, very fuzzy understanding of what time is. In our differential equations, which uh, govern Newtonian physics and and other kinds of physics, we have the uh, the variable as to, uh, time is one of the variables. dx by dt or dy by dt or whatever you want to do it, call it right. Dm by dt. So time is one of the variables and. And uh, so that's how systems in, in physics evolve with time. So time is an explicit variable, but we don't know what it is. Where does time come from? Does it emerge from somewhere? Does it in, emerge from the quantum level of reality? Uh, is it, Does time exist everywhere? If you had a different, I mean, is it possible to construct a hypothetical universe that doesn't have time? Is time related to thermodynamics, to the evolution of states? Is time quantum in nature? Do you have uh, atoms and molecules of time? Uh, where does time emerge from? Is it an intrinsic property of the universe or is it an emergent property of the universe? We don't know any of these things. According to a new paper that has been re published recently, it looks like, I mean, it's, uh, the, this new paper says, I'm not sure, who, I don't remember who the uh, physicist was, who the author of the paper, but um, it's because of decoherence, uh, quantum decoherence, that uh, that creates the the perception of time. So it may be an emergent effect, uh, quantum entanglement and decoherence and all that. So, so it's I mean, there's no no way to prove it as of today, but it's an interesting perspective. Uh, so we don't know for sure. Uh, from a philosophical perspective, there are all kinds of. I mean, India Indian philosophy has a very clear idea. I mean, has a very clear view of what time is and all that. But from a scientific perspective, we don't know for sure. And philosophy and science don't mix. These are two separate domains of, uh, of investigation. So science is separate from philosophy. Philosophy uh, and the science is also separate from, essentially, actually, science is a subset of philosophy. But philosophy, uh, it deals with, uh, with uh, matters that go beyond science so so science is purely is is definitely within philosophy but philosophy deals with certain matters that do not uh, fall in the realm of science because it can uh, you can discuss things that are that are non physical and non observable in philosophy in science you can't so you know so that's how it is so that's what i can say in brief about time past present future we don't know for sure uh, these things we have a perception of time we have a perception of the past, we essentially live in the past, right? All of our memories deal with the past. All of our understanding of the world, the universe, uh, is is based on our past experiences and what we have studied about the past. So our understanding of the world uh, has the basis has a basis in in what we have experienced in the past, and uh, so from our perspective, the past seems to exist we have uh, we have our stored memories that are all about things that events that happened in the past uh, i think animals also have uh, some sort of perception of time they also see they also clearly have memories they also have behavioral patterns that are that are based on the experiences they have had in the past uh, time seems to flow differently from people from person to person time seems to flow uh, time seems to elapse faster as you grow older that's what uh, that's what, that's the human experience is it the same for a dog or a cat or a sparrow <laughs> we don't know so so that's the big mystery 
What is time? Is it something we perceive and is it an illusion? Is it an emergent phenomenon? Is it an intrinsic phenomenon? Past, present, future, do they actually exist or are these just concepts we, our our mind has created in order to make sense of the world? We don't know for sure. And that's the one of the big mysteries. So very interesting question, but nobody has an answer as of today. All right, let's see some more questions. Karan says, is mathematics and astronomy related? Yes, of course. Mathematics is the basis of all physics. Uh, astronomy is a subset of physics. Uh, mathematics describes the uh, mathematics deals with the regularities and patterns that underlie the physical universe and therefore uh, if you want to study astronomy you do need an understanding a good understanding of mathematics especially uh, differential equations and things like that maybe general relativity and uh, you need an understanding of Newtonian physics more or less in astronomy astrophysics is totally different but yes so all science, especially all the physical sciences, uh, are you you can study them and do research in them only if you have a very good understanding of the mathematical tools that are required to uh, investigate those phenomena. So yes, there is a clear relationship. Nishant says, why didn't the Indus River dry up at the time the Saraswati was drying up? Well, it's because these two rivers originated in a very different uh, uh, the origin of these two rivers was very different. The Indus, the Sindhu River, originates deep in the Himalayas. It, it originates from a glacial melt water, from the water that melts from the melting of snows, from of snow and glaciers in the Himalayas. So that is where the Sindhu, that is how the Sindhu uh, originates in the Himalayas. Now the Saraswati also was a river that originated in the in the Himalayas, but the vast majority of its water came from not glacial meltwater, but from the Indian monsoon. And about eight thousand years ago, the Indian monsoon was much much heavier than what it is today. And around six thousand BCE, approximately, the Indian monsoon began to monotonically decline slowly gradually the intensity and the volume of rain that would be unleashed upon the indian subcontinent every year slowly it started declining that's called climate change climate change is a natural phenomenon it also has a human com component today so because of climate change over uh, several millennia from 6000 ad to around uh, 6000 bc sorry to around 2000 bc the monsoon declined monotonically and by around 2000 BCE or something, the, the monsoon had uh, declined to such an extent that this river, the Saraswati, which was mostly fed by monsoon rains, it stopped, it, it uh, shrunk up, it dried to a significant extent and it, it stopped reaching the sea. It, I think it, uh, it appears that it uh, dried out Somewhere in the region of the Thar Desert, the Thar Desert may mo most likely was a lake in the past caused by the uh, slow decline of the Saraswati. And today also, the riverbed is there. If you go northwards towards uh, Haryana, etc., you find that this, this river still has water. It is a monsoon-fed river even today, and that's why it's a seasonal river. So the uh, Saraswati was fed by monsoon rains. It was a massive, gigantic river. If you look at the Brahmaputra today, it originates in the Himalayas just like the Saraswati did. But more than 80-85% of its water 
of the brahmaputra it comes from the, the comes from the rainforest in the in the region of arunachal pradesh from rainfall and all that so even if the chinese block the river they dam it up it's not going to cause much of an effect in india because more than 85% of the water comes from arunachal pradesh from rainfall and all, and such other related processes from the ra- from the rainforest so the saraswati was similar and because the monsoon declined significantly over several thousand years that is the reason why it dried out but the other rivers in the saptasindhu region present day punjab did not dry out because they were main they, their major source of water was the himalayan glacial meltwater so that's why only one river dried out but the sindhu did not dry out neither did the other rivers in this region okay lots of questions mm, let's find something that has not been answered before very interesting see i i am i am not very inclined to talk about rajputs and kshatriyas and this caste and that caste i'm tired of that because they it just causes so much fractiousness so much fiction but this gentleman akshat garg <laughs> has asked a very uh, very interesting question you spoke about the bravery of rajputs but they gave in to akbar and later to the british they lived in palaces while the indian while the indians were dying of famines how were they brave what does indian mean is is akshat garg your real name or are you from pakistan or are you who knows something else because this is uh, this is a uh, something that pakistanis used to to write about india and they write india so this gentleman seems to be a pakistani who is masquerading under an indian hindu name interesting anyhow the question is you spoke about the bravery of rajputs how do you what is the definition of bravery the definition of bravery is that you uh, face danger you are afraid but you still face it and you know the risk you know the risk you may die and yet you go ahead and do whatever is required of you that's called bravery now the rajputs gave in to akbar apparently so this is how it happened you see the rajputs were brave nobody can deny that but some of the rajput leaders did mistakes rajputs believed they had this code of chivalry that you don't uh, that you don't attack someone who who is who has turned their back and who is who has apologized or who has asked for forgiveness and all that thing which is clearly not practical it is uh, it 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 is something that that uh, works only in satyug or tretayug or or dwapar yug it doesn't work in kalyug but uh, that's how it was and that's why they lost so so you had uh, uh, the great queen nayaki devi who defeated that guy ghori but she let him get away the battle happened in gujarat in northern gujarat and he was allowed to escape all the way to, all the way to afghanistan so she was a brave lady the her, her warriors were brave but she allowed the enemy to go away to escape she could have had her soldiers pursue him and when he was trying to escape and kill him i mean afghanistan is a thousand more than thousand kilometers away from gujarat surely you can pursue him and ca- catch up with him and uh, eliminate him right the, the great terrorist gori similarly the great the great king prithviraj chauhan very brave man very noble man no doubt 
but he again spared uh, this guy ghori right the, he was defeated in um, in present day haryana he was allowed to escape all the way to lahore which he was under uh, under his uh, control at the time ghori so again he, he the, this guy could have been pursued he had lost the battle he was he was seriously wounded but he was allowed to get away so it is because of these things that eventually ghori was able to prevail and and defeat prithviraj chauhan and these are the reasons why later on rajput kings had to make compromises with the uh, turks so you know what the great vishnugupta chanakya said he said that the highest morality for a king is that his people and his kingdom should prosper that's what he said so if you are a small king of a small principality in rajputana or in india and you have this great turk who has conquered significant parts of northern india who has a very overwhelmingly large powerful army like akbar right and this guy says that i'm going to wipe you out unless you become my vassal so what will this small rajput king do he will have to make a compromise or the alternative is that all his people die that's why they had to make compromises that's why they had to get, they had they were forced to offer their daughters as wives to these to the turks it's because of the mistakes that people like maharani nayaki devi did and uh, maharaj prithviraj chauhan did now many people have accused me of 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 hating prithviraj chauhan i don't hate him for god's sake i don't hate the guy i'm just disappointed that he made these mistakes i know he was a great king who am i to talk about him come on that's that's the thing about history if you don't understand history if you don't scrutinize the past and if you don't draw the correct lessons from the past then you're going to repeat, repeat the mistakes right so these are the reasons why uh, this gentleman uh, the, i mean the why the rajputs apparently gave in to the to the moguls to to people like akbar's akbar and yes they had to compromise so that their people could stay could stay alive and and uh, live in reasonable dignity right uh, some rajputs did not uh, compromise we know who they are rana sanga um, and the, who else is it uh, rana pratap they fought but what happened they were exiled they had to live in forest their descendants still wander around india right so that's what happened the compromise they did not compromise but they paid a horrible price for that and living in palaces i mean this is the thing people <laughs> i mean do you know the difference between a fortress and a palace i think i've explained this in the past i even may have a couple of short clips about that please revisit that mr akshat garg indians see there were no famines during the end, during the uh, the the uh, major famines were engineered by the british there were a few famines during the turkic occupation of india northern india but the major famines happened during the british times at which time india was broken india had been broken india had been subjugated and uh, so that's how it went how were they brave okay i am not going to take this anymore so i i hope that uh, throws some light upon the process by which india was subjugated it's a slow gradual process a few great kings make some mistakes and later down centuries down the line people have to keep paying the price for the mistakes they made so we have to 
clearly understand what happened and whether you think uh, the rajputs were great or not whether you have a great deal of respect for the nobility and the courage and the character and personality of uh, mr prithviraj chauhan but you have to acknowledge the fact that he made a grave terrible mistake that india is still paying the price for so that's just how it is if you disagree well you are free to disagree but that's that's the way i see it and that's the way you would see it logically all right Sayan of Vishwamitra says the Slavs, the Europeans, and Iranians try to appropriate their culture as Vedic and call themselves Aryans. What's your take on this? So, first of all, there is no such thing as an Aryan race. If there is any uh, any ethnic group that should be called the Aryans, logically, it's the Indians and the Iranians. The Iranians, the ancient Iranians, like I've said many many times, were migrants from india they were the parshwa clan of the rigvedic people the parshwa people and they gave because of their name the, the name of the clan the parshwa clan that's why the name of the country became persia their capital was parshwapur which the greeks called persepolis and they used the term arya as an ethnic self designator so in india arya was an adjective it means noble refined civilized and so on in iran arya became uh, the ethnic adjective or the ethnic noun you know ethnic self designator so they used uh, the persians the, the persians during the hakshamanish dynasty achaemenid dynasty etc they called themselves arya as in an ethnic term and that's how this entire thing happened so i don't see anything wrong if the iranians want to call themselves arya or aryans they they don't the iranians are now all uh, shia muslims so i don't see them trying to appropriate indian culture or vedic culture for themselves their culture was a post vedic culture it was significantly close to indian culture even today the zoroastrians who escaped from uh, from persia who live in india if you see the rituals and traditions there you can see the similarities between their traditions and the vedic traditions so so i don't see anything wrong with them trying to say that we are the descendants of the vedic people and their culture is an offshoot of the vedic culture so that's perfectly fine the slavic people europeans etc well they are the descendants of the yamnaya invaders who were indian in origin they were clearly people who had abandoned the vedic uh, customs and culture they indulged in a horrible rampage across europe they massacred all the european males wherever they conquered and they well they had children with the european females and that's how the modern european population was born so clearly they did not follow vedic customs and traditions and morality because you know massacre genocide is obviously something that uh, vedic culture would never uh, consider to be uh, righteous or good in any way so the europeans the slavs etc if you look at their pre christian culture and religion and all that it is clearly a continuation a broken mangled uh, continuation of the vedic customs the entirety of eurasia from india from the indian subcontinent all the way to western europe to ireland etc was one single cultural continuum 
it was one single culture with lots of very interesting different local manifestations so the nordic gods thor etc these are essentially the same thing as the vedic pantheon the greek pantheon zeus and the others are a continuation of the vedic pantheon of gods indra and all that same as same for the roman pantheon same for the slavic pantheon so their culture is an offshoot of the ancient prime, primordial vedic culture but their culture is clearly not vedic it is a post vedic culture uh, i am not sure if they are trying to appropriate vedic culture vedic culture i don't think that i mean that would be actually laughed off uh, and yeah the aryan invasion theory is an appropriate is an attempt to claim that all of this indian culture came from europe which is well it's on its last legs now so that's my take on it it's not to be taken very seriously what the the thing that needs to be taken seriously is the attempt to to steal yoga pranayam etc this individual called wim hof is now uh, peddling his so called wim hof method which is nothing but pranayam pranayam he calls it the wim hof method of breathing in and out that is bastrika of pranayam and uh, the the cold water and cold air treatment which he is talking about is something he has th- these ideas he has got from from the sadhus who live in the himalayas so this is nothing but outright cultural theft and it's being marketed he's become a millionaire i believe st- uh, selling all this the wim hof method of cultural th- cultural theft so these are the things that we need to take more seriously the theft of yoga the theft of uh, pranayam and all that this is something that needs concerted action from the indian government so that's what i have spoken about in the past as well so so that's what i can say about this harsh says have you read the indian renaissance book by sanjeev sanyal my thoughts on it um, no <laughs> unfortunately i haven't read it sorry i haven't uh, okay let's take some more questions uh Dan Stacks says, "Whatever you people say, after all, Romans have influenced the whole world, both culturally and militarily, scientifically. Funny to see you people are still colonized mentally. So cool. All right, nice observation, sir. Thank you for your two cents. All right, what else? Uh, A.K. the guy says, did Homo neanderthalis have more brain power than sapiens? If if yes, why couldn't they survive cognitive revolution and?" could the sapiens and neanderthalis mate together so uh, we have a good understanding of what our neanderthal cousins were like uh, i think they were if you look at the the size of their brains etc if you because we have evidence from neanderthal skulls and all that it looks like the brain volume was at least the same if not more than that of homo sapiens so uh, if if cranial capacity if brain capacity the volume of the brain is an indicator they were at least as intelligent if not more intelligent than homo sapiens so uh, so the question is why couldn't they survive i'm not sure what the cognitive revolution is but why couldn't they survive that's the question maybe homo sapiens brought with them certain illnesses certain diseases that these guys neanderthals may not have been resistant to maybe that is a possibility could sapiens and neanderthalis mate together yes uh it has been discovered that m- the majority of the non european uh, sorry non african human population con- uh, has some neanderthal dna between 2 to 4 or even 6% of 
non-African uh, people have, uh, sorry, all, all the majority of non-African people have between two and six percent Neanderthal DNA. But uh, recently, I came to know that Indians don't have Neanderthal DNA, or, or most Indians don't have it, which is a very interesting observation. So, to answer your question, that's a digression. To answer your question, yes, uh, Homo sapiens and Homo neanderthalis were very uh, were both subspecies of of human beings, and they could certainly mate together. And that's why many, many, many people who are non-African have a certain amount of Neanderthal DNA. So that's what I can say. We still don't know for sure why the Neanderthals were wiped out. Earlier it was said that they were stupid, they were slow, and the Homo sapiens were more agile and more intelligent, and they competed with them and, and killed them out. But uh, that is a very simplistic uh, view of things. Clearly that was not the case. There may have been coexistence, cooperation instead of competition. And maybe there were some other factors that caused the slow, gradual decline and eventual end of Homo neanderthalis. So that is something that still uh, needs to be investigated. But yeah, clearly it's possible that it was uh, certain pathogens or certain diseases that uh, our sapiens ancestors may have brought with them that could have hastened or caused the decline of Neanderthals. Okay, this is a question I get hundreds of times. Valmiki Ramayan mentions four tusked elephants in Sundarkand. Does it mean it happened four million, millions of years ago? So listen, we know, we have a very good understanding of the timeline of human evolution, yes? A million years ago, there was no Homo sapiens. I mean, there, was no, there were no anatomically modern human beings. The oldest evidence of anatomically modern Homo sapiens is from about 250,000 years before today in North Africa. So that's how old Homo sapiens is and that too is an archaic version of Homo sapiens. Even the Homo sapiens who lived 100,000 years ago, 1 lakh years ago, were in some ways different from what we are today. They would have looked different and... Uh, yeah, there were differences, but they were anatomically quite similar to us. So if you go back a million years, there was no Homo sapiens. And Ramayana is about Homo sapiens. It's about Indian culture, right? If there was no Homo sapiens a million years ago, then how would you have Ramayana or, or, or uh, Indian culture, Indian civilization? About two to four million years ago, we had the divergence between humans and chimpanzees. So about four million years ago, the ancestors of humans were the same as the ancestors of chimpanzees. So please understand the chronology of human evolution and, and it simply doesn't, doesn't fit the millions of years old timeline of, of uh, that some people believe in of Indian history. It simply doesn't work that way. Uh, the best scientific data and understanding that we have says that human beings, Homo sapiens is not older than 250,000 years uh, old. So that simply doesn't fit this uh, this worldview, right? So that's what I can say about it. Okay, now about four tusked elephants. It appears that uh, there were some species of elephants that had four tusks and that they existed a few million years ago. So that's that's perplexing, of course. That's perplexing. 
but uh, the thing is we cannot we should not try and take everything that is mentioned in the ramayana and the mahabharat as something that is literally correct there is much that has been embellished there are a lot of embellishments much of it is allegorical you cannot take everything at face value it is called itihas which means that the major events that are mentioned in the account are historical events but the way they have been described may not be always 100% accurate and factual there may be certain embellishments that are added on top of the actual facts so that's what i can say so i don't have an answer as per, as, as per the as far as the four tusk elephant goes because in recent uh, human history there has been no four tusk elephant i think the four tusked elephants died out uh, a few million years ago most likely i don't have the exact uh, information but something like that so we haven't really coexisted with those four tusked elephants which which is perplexing so maybe it is not to be taken literally or maybe there have been may have been a species of elephant that was like this that we are still not aware of that is also a possibility but that seems to be less likely to me so that's what i can say about this okay let's take some more questions okay this is by anish kulkarni anish says movies music cartoons play an essential role in building a nation's soft power for example k pop anime japanese anime etc is india's entertainment sector doing enough to grow india's soft power and to build a narrative let me add something to this if you watch uh, all the streaming services today amazon prime netflix and there may be many more uh, hbo let's let's talk about the ones that are popular in india i think amazon prime and netflix are the most popular in india look at the kind of shows they have there so many korean shows aren't there there is this show called kingdom there are many detective shows and all there is this uh, squid game all of these things they build up a nation's image and it's yeah it is certainly something that builds up a na- nation's image and prestige and um, uh, it builds up what is known as soft power if you look at k pop it's immensely popular i think globally even in india among teenagers generation z uh the millennials etc kpop kpop seems to be very popular right even though people may not understand the lyrics uh, because they i think they must be in korean and still it's so popular look at japanese anime japanese anime is popular the world over so this is what plays like you say an essential critical role in building a nation's image and soft power is india's entertainment sector doing enough to grow india's soft power and build a narrative india's entertainment soft, uh, sector is doing less than zero look at the quality of indian shows on streaming services it's garbage i mean i have i have not found anything that is to my like liking i mean um, the quality is terrible and the themes they explore are so regressive it's all about portraying india in a negative light so that's why i'm saying they are doing less than zero they are actually portraying india in a negative manner if you show the if you see there may be a few indian shows on netflix and amazon prime what's the quality what are the themes so india's entertainment sector and let's talk about bollywood how are they portraying india 
does bollywood represent indian culture does the music that come out of comes out of bollywood represent indian culture is bollywood dance representative of indian culture no no and no and today i get the feeling when i look at indians it looks like they always have some bollywood song going on in their head and they are all dancing to it in their imagination that's the deep brainwashing that we are seeing of of especially young indians by bollywood the kind of dances that come out of bollywood are uff i have no words to express that and the kind of music that comes out of bollywood it is not indian music it doesn't represent indian culture it represents represents something else so the indian entertainment sector is doing less than zero to grow india's soft power it is growing other nations and other cultures soft power it is portraying other cultures as being part of indian culture and so on and so forth so you know that uh, th- that is very disappointing and i think it is time for uh, for entertainment in india to go beyond bollywood today i think anybody with a small budget can produce a world class entertainment show a world class uh, documentary and i think people in small towns also today they have the equipment that is necessary that that, that is required to do a world class uh, job at uh, at creating tv series and all that so i i don't know why it's not happening maybe india is still not uh, financially prosperous enough maybe another 5 10 years but uh, to answer your sh- to come back and summarize and answer your question no india's en- entertainment sector is not doing anything to grow india's soft power and to build any kind of narrative about india if any narrative is being built it's about showing india in a bad light denigrating india's indigenous culture and promoting a foreign culture as indian culture that's what they are doing okay let's take some more questions hmm let's see let's see let's see my views about somebody i don't have any views about anyone i have views about historical figures and people who matter globally i don't have views about any other people i i don't think we should be discussing uh, individuals too much we should discuss history we should discuss science geopolitics and people at a global level who matter at a global scale so that's what i would like to comment about other people i will not comment about okay this is by so soham saha does the sumerian civilization link with india do they have indian genes do they have indian influence in their culture i think the sumerian culture was quite different from india but they may have clearly had some influences they did worship certain goddesses that do seem to have uh, have some traits that are present in indian goddesses like durga lakshmi etc they uh, what was the sumerian goddess was it a babylonian goddess sumerian goddess inanna and uh, and so on so th- yeah they had some goddesses and some some uh, deities some divinities that do seem to have some some connection with india and i am sure that there were uh, trade and other uh, connections between this region and ancient india we know that there was once a war between um, the akkadian empire under king rimush 
and the Maharashtra kingdom, which was allied with uh, the Indus Valley region, the Saraswati Sindhu uh, civilization. So it appears that some soldiers, Indian soldiers, went and fought on behalf of uh, the Marhashi kingdom against King Rimush. And according to the Akkarian sources, they were able to prevail and, all, and so on and so forth. So there were clearly uh, connections between the Middle East of that time and India. And we are, we, we are able to find India's, uh, the uh, Saraswati Sindhu seals in the Middle East as well. Even in parts of Arabia like Oman and so on. So yes, there were definitely connections. I don't know about Indian genes. If you look at the people of of middle of the Middle East today, even Central Asia, you will see distinctive uh, Indian appearances in some people. That may of course be due to the fact that the Turks took away millions of Indian women and children, mostly as slaves in the uh, in the uh, in the Islamic world, and that's why many people in that region in the Islamic world today would have Indian ancestry of some kind, especially matrilineal ancestry. So maybe that's why they many Arabs and many people from this region may look like Indians. But uh, so that's why if you if you were to uh, do a genetic uh, study of the modern Middle Eastern population, you would certainly find Indian matrilineal lineages, but that may date back to more recent events. But uh, so, uh, to summarize, I would say that uh, the Sumerian civilization did have trade uh, links with India. Maybe some cultural links, but we don't know to what extent that was. Because as we know, our historians have not studied that. So, I don't have the uh, sufficient data to answer this in detail. But yes, from whatever data we know, there clearly looks like there were some cultural uh, links and there were definitely trade Links for sure. Right. Uh, Swasti Shri says, how does gravity affect time? So there's this phenomenon called time dilation in special relativity. If you study general relativity, special relativity, you will see that the presence of mass affects space-time. It causes the curvature of space-time. This curvature of space-time is uh, felt is what we feel as the force of gravity. It also affects time. So if you move closer to a massive object, uh, the, you find that time time actually slows down, and we are able to measure this because the time the um, the time that we the speed at which time flows on the surface of the planet is different from the speed at which time flows uh, in orbit around the Earth, and we are able to measure the differences. So that's what happens. So gravity does affect time. Time slows down near the in the presence of a massive object, and there is a clear relationship which which we have the equations of uh, special relativity that uh, uh, through which you can calculate the exact effect of gravity on time. And uh, to to give you a very popular example, watch that movie. What's it called? Uh, Interstellar, in which this effect uh, plays a big role in the story. So yes, gravity does affect time. Okay. Um, Dinesh Maiti says, what's the current status of archaeology in Dwarka? I think there's nothing being done right now. Uh, 
unfortunately it seems that there is no archaeology being done in dwarka which is uh, disappointing because it's a very interesting archaeological site one of the major archaeological sites so let's take a look at the map and let's see what uh, this place looks like so this is uh, why were we in arabia okay this is india dwarka is over here at this this is where it is this is the mo modern city of dwarka and uh, if you look here why is everything in arabic very interesting <laughs> so this is the city of dwarka the modern day city of dwarka and off the coast of this dwarka or maybe is it another dwarka there is an older dwarka somewhere else mm. so i think it could be most likely here i think there are two sites of dwarka but but let's say it's this one so maybe a few few uh, tens or or dozens of meters off the coast you have an entire underwater sunken city that has been dis discovered there it was discovered in the 1980s and uh, after that it looks like the entire thing has been hushed up and there has been no further research uh, and then there is this island over here which is called bait dwarka i believe they have also found uh, archaeological what on earth okay Arche uh, evidence of archaeological ancient archaeological sites on this island as well if you look here at the satellite images you can see certain uh, certain what what clearly looks like man made walls over here which seem to be very ancient so you can see this is a very ancient uh, island and it seems to have uh, evidence of ancient human uh, settlements and activity over here but unfortunately i don't think there's anything going on right now any any archaeological work being done over here because we know that dwarka was the uh, was where lord krishna ruled from for several years so it was uh, it was where he was king right dwarka so was it here or was it in the sunken city over here or was it in the island of bait dwarka we not don't know for sure and that's what we need to find out i think there was this uh, there is this uh, show uh, this is this, this american tv show called expedition unknown or something josh gates i believe uh, i think they had an episode on, on dwarka in which they came to this island and they discovered a very ancient wall over here maybe this is the one which, which we are seeing here and they also did some underwater work but i'm not sure if they were able to find anything so it's clearly something that we need to investigate in much greater detail we need to spend we need to invest money and time in this this, this is the asi's duty to do all that but nothing is being done right now they are busy re renovating turkic monuments and british monuments but no nothing here so unfortunate Okay, let's take some more questions. Yeah, no, I don't know about this. Tell me the history about the Lingayats and how they're distinct from Veera Shaivas and Hindus. Look, what I know is that Lingayats are just Hindus. Today they have been given the status of, my, of a minority and a non-Hindu non community, etc. This is all political nonsense. They're just trying to divide Hindus further and further. Uh, apart from that, I I haven't studied the history of uh, of the Lingayats and the Veera Shaivas and all that, so 
so unfortunately i can't answer i i am not aware of this i don't have this in a sufficient knowledge to give a to give an answer right but they are not distinct in any way from indians from hindus it's just the same i mean if you go to any 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 place in india you will find a very uh, distinctive local form of hinduism very distinctive traditions and and rituals and all that it doesn't mean it's a, it's a, it's different from hinduism but that's how they are interpreting things now for the sake of getting votes so it's very unfortunate but they are in no way different from hindus okay okay let's take some more questions climate change so soman asks counting in terms of years how many years do you think it will take us humans to revert the amount to reverse the amount of damage we have brought upon the planet and what should be our first and most important step i don't think it's going to be humanly possible to reverse the uh the uh, damage we have done on the planet i don't think we can reverse it uh, climate change has always been a natural process it's it's always been a reality on the planet and what's happened since the industrial revolution the last 2 300 years is that the west has disgorged an enormous amount of carbon into the atmosphere carbon and other uh, particulate matter and all that through mainly through burning coal and fossil fuels the west the western world from the second half of the 20th century onwards the east has been trying to catch up and industrialize and now they are trying to stop that they're trying to slow us down they're trying to now blame india and china for the pollution and for all the climate change which they have caused now i am not saying that we should not do anything what i what i think what i can tell you is that it's it's practically impossible to reverse the damage we have caused all the carbon that has been disgorged into the atmosphere it's there it's not uh, going to be reversed anytime soon what we can do the first now now what you asking is the, the first and most important step i think one of the most important steps is to try and ban plastic all the disposable plastic bags and all that which are choking the oceans now what we are finding is that these plastic uh, the, these plastics have been in the ocean for several decades they have been broken down the plastic still exists as, as plastic but it's broken down into micro particles so you have these micro plastic granules and particles that that are everywhere now in the oceans in the rivers in the drinking water we using plastic bottles for water i think there is a long term effect even this has on on the composition of the water some of these plastic materials may be leaching into the water and if you look at tap water or drinking water you now find that there is there are micro microplastics uh, particles everywhere everywhere i think you even find that in in uh, when they slaughter animals for meat you find microplastics in fish in the meat of animals in in even in milk i believe so i think it is extremely important to stop dumping plastic into the oceans the damage that has already been done maybe we can find some ways of slowly uh, trying to undo it but the oceans are full of plastic it's it's destroying the o- oceanic environment it's killing oceanic uh, ma- ma- marine wildlife fish 
plankton, larger mammals, and so on. And it's going to eventually end up poisoning the land animals and humans. So I think one of the most important things we can start with is to ban disposable plastics. And maybe try and move away from plastic. I know plastic is now an essential part of human activity, human life. I, I'm sure I, can, I have plastics all over me. I'm sure there's plastic here as well. This button is plastic. You see, plastics are everywhere. But we need to find a way to stop using plastic that much. So that is one of the most important things we can do. And try to move to renewable energy, uh, solar energy, wind energy, uh, and all that. Maybe nuclear energy, if we can do it safely. I am sure we can do it safely. It's one of the safest forms of energy. So And, and move away from fossil fuels, you know, slowly. So these things need to be done. And uh, so climate change is a very real thing. The environment is definitely under a significant amount of threat. We are seeing extinctions of various species happening. We seem to be in the middle of a mass extinction event that we have triggered off, humans have triggered off. So yeah, this is a time of crisis, but it's a crisis that's unfolding very slowly, so we don't realize it. But once a few decades pass, you will see the change. Temperatures will rise. Two to three degrees in the next hundred years, which is very significant. Uh, so yeah, the Himalayas may soon be devoid of snow and ice. Antarctica may no longer have glaciers. Water levels may rise. Coastal cities, Chennai, Mumbai, and so on, you know, may may disappear. The entire nation of the Maldives may disappear. The Bangladeshis may be into a deep crisis. Dhaka, everything will go under the water. Where will they go? And someone was asking me, what should India do about this? <laughs> and so on. Yeah, you know, so so it's a big crisis, and these are the th things that need to be done urgently, my friends, urgently. But we, we citizens, can't do anything about it. It's it's for the world leaders to do this. So they need to find some sort of uh, way of reaching at a consensus, and uh, you know what what they call it in politics—a common minimum plan or something like that. So something needs to be done. Uh, let me take some questions from the comments, a couple of questions. Uh, here's an interesting question by Knowledge Seeker. I'm asking the same question again and again. Can you tell when will our Bharat get a great leader by seeing the patterns of world history? Very interesting question. Uh, history is full of patterns that repeat themselves. And seeing the patterns of world history, I would say that India is currently most likely at the cusp of a significant major change. What's happening, see what's happened since 1947 is that the people of India have been deliberately kept very poor. The economy has been kept very low deliberately through design. And Indians have been kept illiterate and Indians have not been taught their true history. Today I get the feeling, I get the sense that slowly the nation is awakening. Somebody asked me, why did people keep on voting Nehru again and again as a prime minister? Because they did not know who he was. They did not understand history. They did not understand anything. They were kept illiterate. And when you're illiterate, you just believe what the leaders tell you. Today, what you are seeing is that people are waking up. People are now beginning to question the mainstream wisdom, the mainstream narrative of everything. So I think that India is on the verge of a significant change and the significant uh, change in the mindset of people, especially among the teenagers of today and the youngsters of today, people who are below the age of 25. And I know from the statistics and data that 
more than 50% of the viewers of my channel are below 25 years of age so i think that india will not get one great leader india will get several great leaders and i think that these great leaders will come from the people who are watching this channel i i can i am certain that within the next 20 years the viewer the people who are watching this video right now and the ones who will watch this video in the future they are going to throw this this audience is going to produce great leaders not one but multiple great leaders in various spheres of of uh, human endeavor maybe uh, in in business in industry in entrepreneurship in technology in in education in politics not just leaders of india but global leaders worldwide leaders i i make the prediction right now that you yes you could be one of those leaders i think in the next 20 years many people who are watching this channel right now are going to be among the leaders great leaders of india and the world so uh this change is upon us and the leaders of tomorrow have already been born they are learning right now they are understanding the world and they need to take the world seriously and get to work and within the next 20 years we will see significant changes in india in leadership i am very positive about this so it's a very good question and that's what i think about it okay back to the live questions uh may pradhan mantri banunga fir why do you want to be pradhan mantri why not president under a new constitution think bigger sir think bigger okay let's take some other questions mahakal mishra says i have read a lot of western feminist theory they don't give a complete solution indian culture has given the biggest feminist uh, that is makali can you speak about her ideology well let me talk to you about feminism feminism is something that emerged from the west see historically traditionally the west has been extremely misogynistic women have been less than second class citizens of the west they were treated brutally they were oppressed they were given no rights no freedoms they had no future except being a housewife and being a baby producing machine that's how women lived in the west now what happened is that in the us in the 19th 18th and 19th century there was a shift in attitudes and women women began to uh, began to uh, demand changes and that's where feminism comes from and it is certainly uh something that started with extremely good intentions of of liberating women from the shackles uh that that the western culture had placed them under the patriarchal shackles of western culture so this was a rebellion against this it was a gradual rebellion because you know they were treated quite brutally they uh, men had the right to beat women and they essentially owned the women they married you know that's how it was so uh, that's that's the milieu that's the environment that feminism emerged out of it was a cry for help it was um an attempt to to make things better for women and it had a uh, very good intentions and slowly women were able to win more rights you know uh, female suffrage the right to vote uh, the, the right to be equal citizens and so on and so forth the right to stand for office the right to get an education and all these things 
but afterwards later what happened is that they tried to force fit that onto every culture in the world because we are so misogynistic it means everybody has to be misogynistic and because we are the west we have whiter skin that means the people in the east must be even worse than us especially the polytheists hindus and that's why they have tried they are now trying to portray indian society hindu society as being misogynistic they is that regressive patriarchal backward on all those things that's been a, a a project that's been underway for at least 200 300 years right so uh feminism came out of a certain socio cultural context that is the misogynisty the misogyny and oppression of women in western society so it was a solution to that problem in that context it has no relevance in indian society indian culture indian civilization has always uh, has always respected women and always treated women as more than equals so there is no need for any feminism in india uh, in certain strata of indian indian society i expect feminism would have some relevance but not in indian hindu society not in indian culture and civilization so like like you mentioned we have so many great strong women in in uh, in the hindu pantheon and in, in, in indian history as well right many great brave women who have taken up arms who have taken up leadership positions who have changed society i we can give so many examples rani lakshmi bai uh, the great ahalya bai holkar uh, we recently spoke about uh, what's her name the great queen nayaki devi solanki even though she let gori go she spared him but she defeated him she her son who was the king was just an infant so she went to war she she actually participated in the battle she may not have actually gone and fought but she was there and that shows there is skin in the game if they had lost she would have lost her life but she went there and that's that's how brave indian women were lakshmi bai the great uh, lady she lost her life for the british the killer through treachery and all that and we have so many examples of great indian women who have been intellectual scholars many of the verses the mantras of the rigveda were composed by female intellectuals female scholars right female rishikas gargi lopamudra and so many more right so we don't need this western feminism they should learn from us actually but that will happen only when we wake up my friends when we wake up and we stop seeing ourselves as inferior and backward and misogynistic and everything is wrong with indian society and all the solutions will come from the west no the solutions will come from india we are the superior culture we have been the superior culture of late we know what's happened india has been under foreign occupation for 1000 years and that's where everything went wrong and that's where certain unfortunate things have crept into indian society once we are liberated from the foreign influences and foreign occupation which we still are not once that happens the self writing of indian society will happen naturally that's just how society evolves so what happens is we need freedom india is still not free 1947 was just a transfer of power it was dominion status 1950 was a colonial colonized republic and we are still colonized so when when india really gains its independence then things will go in the right direction the 
Diogo says, didn't India get infected by misogynism in any way? Yes, we were infected by <laughs> by foreign cultures, which treated women like, you know how they regard women? They regard their own women and any women in the world as merely pieces of meat. So yes, India was infected and still is infected with that uh, in, in certain sections of society, in certain minds, with that uh, mindset, with that perspective. So yes, that's what I said. In the past 1000 years, India has been under foreign occupation by barbarians, by people with inferior cultures. And uh, that's that, that's why we see certain crimes in Indian society today. It's It's not part of Indian culture at all to act in such a manner against women, ever. Okay, let's see some more questions. Okay, this is a question about geopolitics. How is the West an ally of India? They created Pakistan as a buffer state to counter India into Central Asia. Khalistan propaganda operates in the West. In the media, they portray India as negative. Well, I have never said that the West is an ally of India. The West is, uh, it currently wants to use India, utilize India as hopefully for them, as a counterweight to China. China is becoming a big threat for them. And in Asia, there's only one power that can really counterbalance China, which is India. So that is why they are working with India with the common objective of, of keeping China in check. So that's the only uh perspective from there, from where they are working together with India. Apart from that, we are civilizational rivals. They have always, the West for the past nearly five centuries has wanted to plunder and destroy India. Plunder India, uh, pillage India and destroy Indian culture and civilization. That's been the project. It started with Columbus and Vasco da Gama and it's still underway. So they are not allies of India from a cultural or civilizational perspective. This is a short-term thing that currently we have the same enemy. We have a common enemy and your enemy's enemy is my friend. That way. That's how geopolitics works. There is no permanent ally or, or adversary. It's all about convenience. It's all about the short and medium term. So that's what's going on. Yes, you are right. They created they, they broke India into pieces. They created Pakistan as a permanent uh, counterweight to India. Uh, it's a British project, even the other, so what, Khalistan, etc., it's all uh, being done out of out of uh, the UK and Canada mostly, uh, and other Western countries. So yes, the West is in no way an ally of India. If, you, if, if we think that way, then we are making a huge mistake. We have to do it alone. We have to rise on our own strength. We have to be confident in our culture and our civilization and we have to embrace science and technology to get ahead in the 21st century. History is very important so that you know what mistakes have been done in the past so that you learn from other people's mistakes. History is also important so that you gain the confidence of knowing that we were great in the past, we succeeded in the past and we have the same genetics, the same blood so we can do it again. Right? Culture and civilization is important because it gives you the right morality, the right values, the right principles, 
and the right approach and science and technology are the tools that take you forward whenever india was great in the past it was number 1 in the world in science technology mathematics astronomy all these things so we have to embrace science and technology wholeheartedly big embrace and that's what will take what will take us forward so good question sir let me take another question from uh, the comments i had promised i would answer this today so this is a question by vinod madhavan why did the plague not strike india during the times of the bubonic plague and the plague of justinian all of europe and many places surrounding asia were affected was the indian was the ancient ayurvedic system so advanced so this is a very very interesting question very fascinating question so what was this plague the plague of justinian happened in the 6th century ad it was justinian was a roman emperor the eastern roman empire, emperor constantinople uh, at the peak of this plague epidemic this was part of the first plague pandemic that went on from the 6th century ad to the 8th century ad nearly 200 or even more years it lasted there were 15 to 20 15 to 17 18 major waves of 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 this of this epidemic pandemic and it caused the deaths of approximately 100 million people in europe so the plague of justinian happened in the middle of the 6th century ad at the peak of this epidemic in constantinople about 10000 people were dying every day and the origin of this plague pandemic was to the east in china surprise big surprise it originated in china now what is plague plague is a bacterial illness it is caused by a bacillus i think it's a bacillus yeah a rod shaped bacterium y pestis and the mode of transition uh, transmission the vector is the flea the flea is a small very small insect that uh, that is a parasitic insect it it rides on rats so the rats are the first to be infected they and, and then the wherever rats go the the fleas also go and the fleas will then bite human beings and that's how the the bacterium infects humans this was the bubonic plague the, the it was later known as the black black death which was another plague pandemic in the 14th and uh, in the 14th century which killed about 200 million people in europe about 50 to 60% of the entire european population was wiped out this is in the 14th century so there were many episodes of plague and they all originated in china the vector is the is the flea which is carried by rats so why was india spared why did the plague never enter india and that is a fascinating question i can guarantee you your history teachers have not thought about this or they, even if they thought about it they have not been able to answer it and nobody has raised this questions so this is a very good question and what's the answer well the answer lies in the mode of transmission the vector the vector is the flea it is carried by rats so these rats they somehow made their way into europe through trade routes between china and europe in some way or the other and then they were able to proliferate in the european cities and across europe and these rats carried these fleas which are the act- actual vector of the disease and that's how so many humans died so the answer lies in these rats and fleas so i am so at the time we also had trade with china china and india were closer than china and europe 
so chinese traders did come to india but how did how then did india not get affected by this pandemic i can tell you why it's because india has a very specific system of hygiene and cleanliness if you have a dirty environment where rats can proliferate then you're going to fall prey to the pandemic european cities were hideously dirty this is very well recorded they did not have sewage systems they had a terrible uh, garbage disposal processes or no process at all they used to throw waste on the streets this is very well recorded by lots of sources europe was extremely dirty it was filthy there was no sense of hygiene there was no concept of hygiene conversely in india from the vedic times we had indians were ridiculously ridiculously particular about hygiene the first thing you do when you wake up is to take a bath ritual uh, bathing in a certain specified manner you don't wear clothes twice ever you wash them properly you dry them in the sun you don't dump garbage anywhere india used to have excellent uh, sewage dis- disposal waste disposal systems and all that before everything was destroyed during the islamic uh, and turkic invasions and later the european invasions so india had a, a ridiculously <laughs> rigorous emphasis on good hygiene and good sanitation and all that that's why rats just would not proliferate in india and that's why even if one or two cases may have happened of the plague they were not transmitted and that's why the, the, that is the reason why there was no plague pandemic in india even though it ravaged across europe so many times over the centuries and killed i would say a total 300 or more million europeans over the centuries that's an enormous amount of deaths so that's why there was no plague pandemic in india when much of eurasia even north africa was affected so badly but during the british occupation of india you had multiple plague epidemics in india in the 20 in the early 20th century this affected bombay which is now mumbai thousands maybe tens of i think lakhs of people died in mumbai in the early 20th century because of the plague pandemics people died in gujarat people died across india in the plague pandemics during the british occupation of india why is that because india's culture and civilization had been destroyed india's uh, sanitation systems had been dis- destroyed indian culture had been become very weak people did not have the level of prosperity to be able to carry out their practices and traditions and all that so india became a, a the british started the practice of dumping sewage and waste into rivers into into allowing garbage to accumulate everywhere and that's how the conditions became ripe during the british occupation of india for rats to proliferate and that's how the plague epidemics ravaged across india during the british occupation of india so that is the answer very good question all right let us go back to the live questions all right we have a philosophical question what does it mean to be human well to be human is what does it mean to be human uh it means to not be a cat or a mouse or a dog or a horse or a fish whatever makes us different from other species it is what it means to be human so we have certain endeavors that the other species don't have 
we have higher pursuits we have much in common with our uh, the with the other animals right we need to eat we need to sleep we need to uh, do all these other physical activities and all that we breathe we reproduce and so on and so forth so this is what we have in common with dogs cats mice rats birds fish dolphins and so on but we have certain things that set us apart from them we have a different kind of intellect we have a much higher intelligence uh, at least that's what we believe uh, we have pursuits that make no sense to animals like music culture literature entertainment so these are the things that may that that make that differentiate us from other animals it is these higher pursuits we have culture we have philosophy we have ethics morality we have religion uh, we have civilizations and so on and so forth so these are the things that make us different from our closest relatives the chimpanzees the gorillas the baboons the bonobos uh, and so on so that in brief would i would say is what it means to be human uh, i'm sure a philosopher would answer it in much greater detail all right some more questions shyam surelia says who is india's true ally india's true ally is india itself we can only seek alliances with ourselves we cannot rely on allies in geopolitics because allies will you see it's how it is alliances happen when there is a convergence of national interest but when national interests start diverging the alliance doesn't last look at india and the ussr india and the ussr were extremely strong allies during the cold war india was a satellite state of the ussr now after the events of the 1990s india and russia are now not great allies we don't have a very strong alliance we still have a significant commonality of interests and yet the russians are now hedging their bets they are uh, cooperating with the chinese they are cooperating even with the pakistanis to some extent right of course the india russia, russia relationship is still reasonably strong there is still a great amount of uh, warmth etc between the leaders of the two countries but it is no longer a strategic alliance the way it was in the 20th century and if you look at other nations again if you look at the us for instance the us isn't really a strong ally of india it does take actions that that go against india's national interest from time to time and so on and so forth so india a nation has no real long term true allies you have to rely upon yourself and your wits and your instincts and your resources and your people etc to uh, to go forward in the world so there are no true allies shikhar says uh what are your future plans for our channel they will be really revealed soon enough soon enough there will be there will be significant changes very soon i will let you know soon okay what else do we have 
Let me take some interesting questions that have not been asked before. Suspense, yes. <laughs> Suspense. Okay, let me take one more question from the from the comments. This is by Raj Vardhan. My views, your views on Mitrokhin archives, it claims that Indira Gandhi was a KGB agent under the code name Vano. True or false? Was the KGB involved in Lal Bahadur Shastri's death? So what are the Mitro, Mitrokhin archives? There was a guy, a, a Russian uh, KGB agent called Vasily Mitrokhin who defected to the West in the 1990s. I think in 92 or something like that. And he brought with him entire suitcases of handwritten notes about the operations that he had participated in, which were all... Uh, so these handwritten notes contained lots of secrets, alleged secrets, about the various operations of the KGB, which is Russia's secret service, the spy service, over, over several decades. And much of this apparently is still classified. And much of this uh, reveals things about uh, the various activities, covert activities and operations the, that the KGB undertook in various countries uh, during the Cold War. The KGB was the USSR's uh, secret service, spy wing, whatever you want to call it, right? So uh, I think some uh, versions or some portions of this have been published in the public domain. I think it's available in the form of some books, one or two volumes. Some of it is available online. Some of it is said to be still classified. So we don't know uh, what that would be. Some of it is still secret. And all of this is what this person, Vasily Mitrokhin, has alleged. It cannot be confirmed or denied. Now, I, I've heard that it claims, when it comes to India, that apparently the Prime Minister of India, Mrs. Gandhi, she received funds from the USSR, entire suitcases full of money, cash, it seems. That's what is alleged. Uh, there is no way for me to confirm or deny this. I have, I don't have access to the actual uh, data, to the actual information, but this is what it claims. So this is this is the allegation that is made in the Mitrokhin archives. That the Prime Minister of India herself was receiving large amounts of cash from the USSR and she essentially, allegedly, according to this, these claims, was an agent of the KGB or the USSR. That's what has been claimed. It's not me who is saying it. That's what the Mitrokhin archives claim. It also claimed that the USSR, the KGB, was able to publish thousands of news reports in Indian um, media, in, in, in Indian magazines and newspapers and all that. And they were not even able to publish even 1% of that in NATO countries. So that's how deeply they were able to control the Indian media. Yesterday, somebody asked me about a question about the Indian media. And I said the Indian media and the world media has always been up for sale. So if this is true, then this totally corroborates, corroborates that. That the USSR had bought out India's editors and newspaper publishers and all of these people, media. So apparently they published thousands and thousands of news reports, planted stories in the Indian media to shape public opinion. And that public opinion you see in, the, in those, uh, those perspectives, those narratives, those beliefs you see in the 
in in the minds and thoughts and pronouncements of the people who grew up in those days very much pro ussr and very much pro socialist pro communist and and uh, that entire world view right so apparently the ussr was able to influence india that much through by by corrupting india's media so these are the claims that have been made i don't know if they are true or false i don't have the means to verify or or to corroborate or to deny these claims but that's just what is alleged and that's what i can say was the kgb involved in the lal in, in the death of lal bahadur shastri the prime minister of india it's it's possible i've even heard some claims being made that were made by former cia agents that the cia was involved in the death of prime minister shastri again i don't have the information this information i'm sure the indian government would know better than me but i'm sure it is highly classified and it will not be revealed anytime soon i expect but it does look like it was not a natural death it looks like he was poisoned and uh, maybe someday we will know the truth as of today we don't okay let's take a couple more questions uh okay let's take this one kanu kani <laughs> if our sun explodes or dies what will be the impact on the earth can we survive it well this event uh, so the sun will never go supernova the sun will simply become a red dwarf uh, a red sorry a red super giant it will expel its outer layers and then it will die slowly as a as a white dwarf slowly over time it will never go supernova it is not massive enough to go supernova now this will happen several billion years in the future 1 billion is 10 crore so this will happen about, about approximately 5 or so approximately billion years in the future if you look at the human history homo sapiens is about 2 and 1/2 lakh years old the human species is about 2 to 4 million years old as a distinct species distinct from our chimpanzee cousins so 4 million is how long we have lived and this event is going to happen 5 billion years in the future the age of the earth itself is about 3 and a half or so roughly billion years so this event will happen in the future at a time span at a time scale that is longer than the age of the earth itself so will humans still be alive that is i mean it's it's seriously doubtful right we have seen species come and go on the planet 65 million years ago you had a whole different kind of uh, a zoo a different situation on the planet you had dinosaurs that were the uh, dominant uh, f- family of species today they are a minor family of species the birds so species come and go certain species last several million years some species last hundreds of millions of years if they are lucky but i don't know of any species that has survived a billion plus years so i think it would be highly unlikely that humans would still be here on the earth when this event happens maybe we will survive and go on to some other star system because this event is coming so uh, so it won't really affect humans whether we survive or not when this happens what will be the impact on the earth so when the sun becomes a red super giant it will most likely engulf the earth 
and the earth will be burnt to a crisp and later uh, as these outer layers go away earth will still survive but there will be no life left if there was any life uh, still surviving at that point so that's uh, kind of what will happen right okay rahul says why are we the quad not recognizing taiwan as a country what are we afraid of the question is what will we gain by recognizing taiwan as a country what geopolitical advantage will we gain by giving the title of country to taiwan see the world doesn't change when you give a new name or a new label to a piece of land what changes the world yesterday i spoke about the great german german chancellor otto von bismarck he said that the world is not changed by eloquent speeches it is not changed by words what changes the world what shapes the future of the world is blood and iron what he meant was action so giving a label to taiwan a new label is not going to change the world words don't change the world it is actions that change the world and again there is a consequence that there are consequences that the world will face if they recognize taiwan as a country yesterday i spoke about the fact that china controls more than 95% of the supp- global supply of uh, rare earth metals which are um, a critical component of all high technology devices and and um, defense equipment so if you recognize taiwan as a country they will cut off their supply the supply to your country and then how will you manufacture anything so these are costs that china can actually impose on india and, and, and other countries if we recognize taiwan as a country so the chinese have been able to achieve the status through decades of hard work so if we want to be in a position with that where we can change the world we will also have to put in the decades of hard work of going in the right direction putting a label on a country you see is not going to change the world it's not going to do anything change anything on the geopolitical chessboard it is actions not words that change the world so that's why nobody is bothering to recognize taiwan as a country because there is no real benefit to be gained from that right okay let's um, let us see something interesting Shri Krishna says, "Is the Chola Empire the greatest thalassocracy, thalassocracy of India? Uh, are Indian history school textbooks not showing the contributions of South India and Maharashtra to Indian culture? Indian history textbooks have done a terrible job of representing the southern part of India, the eastern part of India, and possibly Maharashtra also in in India's history. Right? I mean." before 2060 nobody had heard of the cholas has anybody heard of the of the cheras the pandyas has anybody heard of the of the uh, great kaling of the great kalingas the gangas the other, the other dynasties of kalinga who did so much to to promote indian culture globally especially in in eastern asia we don't know about any of these things because india's history textbooks have always been north india centric and turkic centric mughal centric that's all they want to glorify that's all they want to focus on 
in the 1980s and 1990s etc there was this tv channel called doordarshan which showed everything from a new delhi perspective so india's history textbooks are also like that everything is north india centric the chola empire was one of the greatest thalassocracies of india uh, what is a thalassocracy it it means a maritime empire it the chola empire was one of, one of the greatest maritime empires of the entire world in entire in the entire human history so yes the cholas were great the kingdom of kalinga the empires of kalinga kalinga were also great many of these dynasties in southern india have been totally marginalized the chalukyas the satvahanas so many there are so many dynasties that are, that are not even mentioned that nobody even knows of so i agree that indian history textbooks have not shown the contributions of southern india of eastern india of maharashtra of the great marathas come on of the great ahoms of the states of northeast india of the great uh, dynasties in manipur for instance nothing nothing at all nobody has even heard of these things so yeah this needs to change and if the government doesn't change it we need to change it all right let us take let's see how many questions yeah good question so this is by uh, suryavanshi shiromani ikshwaku the question is if the pashtuns are much closer to indians in terms of regional culture and ethics as many of them had jat and gujjar ancestry why do they have surnames such as ali khel and uh, etc showing islamic information well yeah okay so the question is why do the pashtuns of today have islamic names and, uh, and names that don't sound indian at all stanik zai and uh, ali khel like you said and if you um, i mean what examples what other examples do we have lots of other examples i'm sure uh, karzai right and so on why do they have such names well let me ask you different questions how many what is the person what is the percentage of muslims in india's population about 20% india has more than 200 or 300 million muslims uh what kind of surnames do they have many of them have i mean not many of them 99.999% of them have indian ancestry so what surnames do the indian muslims have they have arabic surnames right and arabic first names also so then why are you why are we surprised that the pashtuns also have such such surnames so they have surnames that seem to be turkic in 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 uh, origin zai stanik zai ashgar zai or whatever zai ali khel i believe that uh, there is a significant turkic influence there was a significant turkic influence i don't believe it i know for a fact that there was a significant turkic influence in gandhar after it was conquered by the turks and uh, the demographics and culture was changed so that's why these uh, this particular system of nomenclature was introduced in this region and that's why despite the indian ancestry that they have which i demonstrated yesterday from the genetic research papers despite having indian ancestry the pashtuns have these uh, foreign sounding surnames and islamic first names because of the past 1000 years of history it's a consequence of the past 1000 years of history all right we are getting to the end of today's thing shall i take one more question 
Raj Vardhan says, is the big, what is the Big Bang Theory? Is this theory completely right? The Big Bang Theory is the history of the entire universe. Starting from the very initial moments after the universe was born until today. So that is the Big Bang chronology. That is uh, physical cosmology. That is the Big Bang Theory. So it says that the universe uh, was born, you could say, about 13.8 roughly billion years before today. It expanded out of a single singularity apparently. That's what, uh, that's the best information that we have. And uh, there was a period of inflation, cosmic inflation, and, and so on and so forth. And today the universe exists in the state that it is as a consequence of all the events that happened after that. That is the best theory that we have as of today. Is it completely right? I am sure we will make improvements to this theory. Maybe, maybe there will be some changes in the future. That is the natural course that you will always see in physics. The things you as as more data is available, the picture changes, and then you make improvements to the, the to the theory. Is the theory completely right? No, there are big gaps. There are big. Uh, there are many things that we don't understand that we don't know. We don't understand. We we don't quite know what caused the Big Bang, why the four forces are the way they are. Uh, we don't know the the nature of dark matter, dark energy. Where do they come from? And so on and so forth. So there are many, many, many gaping holes in the theory. And yet this is the best theory that we have as of today. So that is what I can say about this. And that brings us to the end of today's session. Thank you very much for all the questions. Really enjoyed interacting with you all. And we shall keep on doing this. So I will see you again, same time, same channel next week. Until that time, thank you so much. Take care. And see you soon. Bye.